Uh, if you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, we're going to be reading, picking up in verse 42, as we consider for the second time the state of the church. And uh, so we're going to read from Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, and then we will pray and, uh, and turn to the explanation of God's word. The scripture says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and to attend to your word. We thank you that we are able to hear you speak through your word. We thank you that the Spirit works with the word changing us, transforming our hearts, renewing us. For some, Lord, who, who don't know you, raising us to life. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Father, for those who are believers, the scripture says that your word is a light to our path. And so we thank you for the word which illumines the way in which we should walk and the way in which we should follow. We pray that we would be careful to obey what we hear in your word. Father, we're thankful for the scriptures. We think of of people throughout the world who do not know your word, like the Nuan people in Laos. 37,000 people who are afraid of, of spirits, the spirits of the forest, the spirits of the village. Father, we pray that you would bring your word to them and that you would change their culture and their character, that they need no longer fear you, but that they would honor you in the way that they live. Father, I thank you for harvest. I thank you for the way that you're working in the life of our church. I pray that as we turn to your word, I pray that you would help us to focus As Paul urged Timothy, that that as a good soldier, he should not get entangled in the affairs of the world. That he should join in suffering for the cause of the gospel. And Father, I I pray for different groups of people in the church this morning. For those who are casual consumers of church and who do not know you in spirit and truth, I pray that they would hear the gospel and hearing it, that they would apply themselves in faith to it and that they would believe, that they would put their faith and trust in Christ and be transformed. Father, I pray for those who have believed but yet who are applying no energy to their Christian life, I pray that they would take up the burden of working out their salvation in fear and trembling, making, as Peter says, their calling and election sure, and that they would fight the good fight of faith, Lord, taking up their obligations and responsibilities as a believer. 
And Father, for those who, who are engaged, those who are running that race, and yet, Father, have not yet committed to your plan of the church being your body in the world, I pray that they would see that the individual Christian is a target for Satan and the flesh and the world and that they need to be part of the body because that is where you are working through the church. And then, Father, for those who are committed to the church, committed to their Christian life, committed to you, leading in the church, perhaps a vision for the body, but seeing some of its, some of its deficiencies and aches, I pray that you would give them endurance and that you would fire up their heart to faithfulness and that you would comfort them in the leadership position that you've placed them in and that they would apply themselves diligently to the work, working as if for you and not for men, working for eternity and not for time, working for their glory or their joy and your glory and not for treasures that, that pass away in this world. I pray that you would give the leaders within this church endurance and vision as they work for the long haul and for, for the big payoff in eternity when we stand in your presence and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray for all, Father, that we'd be shaped and changed by the word. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In 1980, a man named Richard Ankrom was driving on a highway in California. He was living in Orange County. He's driving north on the 110 freeway. And as he's, he's driving on this road, passing through downtown Los Angeles, he was looking to merge onto another freeway, but found himself hopelessly lost. He could not find the I-5. And, uh, and that bothered him, but he eventually made it to his destination. Uh, Twenty years later, he was riding on the same road looking for that same turnoff, and, and as the, the road suddenly came up and passed him by, he realized why he had gotten lost for 20, or 20 years earlier and, and why this had sat with him and bothered him for 20 years. The road was not marked. And so he could not get to his destination. He got lost again. But instead of doing what so many of us do, and that's living with the state of that, those affairs, just kind of adapting or adopting the frustration, uh, he decided he was going to do something. Rather than petition the government to put up a sign, rather than uh, making noise down at the Department of Transportation, what he did was he downloaded something off the internet called the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, and then measuring and, and making color comparisons and, and figuring out exactly what he needed to put together, he, in his art studio at home, constructed his own sign, his own I-5 North sign. It took him several months, and he enlisted several people in this plan, but on an early morning, on a Sunday, when he should have been in church worshiping the Lord, uh, he went out with a ladder and a 
highway safety vest on, and he went out on to Route 110. He put a ladder up against the fence. He climbed over the fence and went up onto the sign and hung up his own I-5 sign that he had painted himself. And then he slipped away. And no one noticed for nine months until some of his friends pointed out that the improvement uh, in highway signage was due to this man's, uh, what, what you could call, guerrilla servant signposting, whatever, however you want to call it. He hung out the sign. Uh, the Department of Transportation then, hearing about this, did not issue him a summons. Uh, they did not issue him a rebuke. They went out and they measured the sign and they found out that it did in fact measure up to the expectations of the, the, uh, the manual on uniform traffic control devices and they did not congratulate him. They asked that no one would imitate him, but they did not take the sign down. In fact, they hung up two more and the sign hung in its place for eight years, uh, presumably preventing other people from getting lost. I think that's an appropriate story uh, because there are many hurting and lost people in the world. There are many people who are searching for spiritual meaning. There are many people who are, who are seeking to, to change their lives, who they have a conviction that something is, is wrong, something's going astray. I believe that this comes from the Holy Spirit urging them to seek meaning. Um, and, and they sometimes come to a church and they find that there is in fact no church there. There may be somebody with a Bible saying something that's not the gospel. And therefore, because what is being proclaimed from the pulpit is not in line with the manual on uniform gospel proclamation, that's what we would call the Bible, uh, those who hear that word may begin to adjust and change some things in their lives, but they cannot be saved because the word that's proclaimed is not a saving word. They may enter into a fellowship, a gathering of people who, because they are not consulting the manual on uniform church conduct, they find that, that that fellowship is full of gossipy, difficult, judgmental people who show no grace, who show no kindness, and, and therefore they, they leave that fellowship, or they stay there and grow into that fellowship's image. Or they may find themselves in a fellowship of people who do not consult the manual on uniform human holiness and therefore when they enter into this fellowship what they find is nothing but grace, nothing but friendliness, nothing but health and, and happiness and they hear nothing of judgment. They hear nothing of maintaining godly standards in their life and therefore they cannot be saved. And so I think it's urgent that every Christian that every believer, that every leader within the church regularly consults the manual, regularly 
investigate and, and set aside time to inspect the state of the church, like we're doing um, on, on the third Sunday this year, and ask the question, is the sign that we're hanging out, is the gospel that we're proclaiming, is the church that we exist at one which would measure up to inspection and get approval? Would the Lord look at our church and say, yes, this is indeed a church? Now, you might say, nice story, good job, you know, crafty introduction. Is it so? Does God inspect churches? Does God demand that churches measure up to his standards? I would say yes. You have, you've, can look several places. One which I would point you to is the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus issues not one set of standards for the churches, but he critiques and rebukes seven different churches, rewarding some, rebuking others, threatening some encouraging others in the way in which they should go. Well, as we come to our church, as we look at Harvest this morning, um, I want to kind of pick up some of what I I said a month ago and then finish off some of what I said last week. Um, For those of you who who like order and who don't like when I say I'm going to say seven or eight things and then I get to six, I'm going to try to fill that in. And then I want to talk about... uh, how it is that, that we pursue making sure that, that we measure up in the area of ministry. So how do we know that a church is a church? I've, I've shared this seven times, but I'm going to keep on saying it until several of you say, we get it, we understand, and we can, we can tell you what the, the marks of the church are. I, I've shared before that there are three what I would call, what, what wise theologians taught me, uh, are the essential marks of the church, and then those which are the beneficial marks of the church. The essential marks of the church, is there a church in the church, uh, are, are these. Is this fellowship a group of visible saints? Are those who are in the membership of the church, are they redeemed believers who are seeking to live lives of holiness? Are they covenanted together? You are the man. Yes, thank you. Everyone will thank Brian later that, that he saved me from uh, a, a, an extended period of, of scratchy throat preaching by giving me cough drops. And these are my favorites. Those are Ludens, right? The pine, the little gummies, those are awesome. Thank you. Um, the, the marks of the church are visible saints, they, they are covenanted together. They gather together around an agreement and they say, this is who we believe God is. This is who we believe uh, that, that Christ is. This, is. this is what's happened in our life and this is the way that we're going to live. And then they properly administrate word and sacrament in the church. The Lord's Supper and baptism are celebrated in a proper and fitting way and the word is proclaimed. Then there are those marks which are beneficial to the church. The church can be there, but will not be healthy ultimately without it, without these marks. And, and they are, according to Christopher Blackwood, Baptist, um, profession, that the church has a statement of faith, it has an articulated sense of, of what it believes. 
that there is discipline, both positive discipline and encouraging of saints to live in a way that's holy and corrective discipline where where the church seeing that someone is not living in a way consistent with the gospel then urges them to humble repentance seeking to restore them to proper fellowship with God and the church and then fifthly it is sixthly but it's fifth in his list and so I'm dealing with it last because this is where we're going to go next the church ought to have a ministry. And a ministry is not dependent upon a minister. That's the the point that I keep making as we consider this subject. Why do I keep driving this home? Because the ministry of the church needs to be wider than the ministry of the individual minister that the church has called to lead or to shepherd the people because leading and shepherding the people may be the job of the elders but that is not the job of the church if the church is a kingdom of priests if it's a gathering of believers who are indwelt with Christ and with the power of the Holy Spirit and they have the ability to minister grace if the charge of the leadership of the church is to equip the people for the work of the ministry, then a church must expand and be continually inspecting and then expanding its horizons of ministry. So those are the marks of the church. Second, the the church is Christians. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47 in just a, a couple moments, but but, but notice what it says. So those who received his word, those who received Peter's word, those who in prior verses responded to the call to repent and to be baptized, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls to the church. The church is composed of Christians, Christians who, who believe the word, who repent and then who throw their lot in life in with the church that were added about 3,000 souls. And so the, the assumption about what comes next in Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47 is that the church is composed of believers and that the believers are to live as believers. What does a properly functioning believer look like? This was what we talked about last week. The, the responsibility of the believer is to make war on the world. We can talk about that in a little bit. And to make war upon the devil and to make war upon himself. And this does not mean some kind of holy war. It means, it means that, that we are involved in actively resisting the temptations of the world and the temptations of the devil, not being conformed into the image of the world, not not giving in to the temptations of the devil, instead resisting him, but then actively resisting our flesh and living in a holy way. So the properly functioning believer will be crucifying his or her sins and then stirring himself up to fulfill his obligations. And then we spent the bulk of last week focusing on those obligations, which are that the the believer is responsible to read, to absorb the word of God. That's one. Second, to then heed that word, 
the, the believer is responsible to be accountable to what he or she has heard. If, if the believer reads that they are to give in support of the ministry, or they, they, they read that they are to forgive, or that they are to persevere, or that they are to endure hardship, or that they are to forgive someone who has sinned against them, the believer then may have read and absorbed the content of the word, but they are not heeding it. They're not heeding that word unless when they are bitter, they then pursue forgiveness. When they are angry, they then respond by saying, I'm going to be angry, but I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to give the devil an opportunity. Heeding the word says that we, when we hear it, we bring our lives into a, a practice consistent with it. Third is prayer. Fourth is meditation, which is a, a solemn, uh, as Thomas Watson puts it, a solemn locking of ourselves up unto God, where we, where we take the word and we consider the goodness of it, and we consider the benefits of God, and we consider the work of Christ, and we consider the fleeting pleasures of sin and, and the blessings of eternal life, and we, we, we consider our own sorry estate, and then we make decisions based on that, that that is the course of our thinking. Um, Pastor uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the reason why so many Christians struggle in this life is that they spend an enormous amount of time listening to themselves instead of talking to themselves. Have you ever noticed that, that you can catch your, your brain just kind of thinking about all kinds of things? You're, you're worried about you know, uh, picking the kids up from school, you're worried about paying this bill, you're worried about this person in your family, you're, you're thinking about this or that, you've got all this stuff going on, and then you're just like, hey, brain, what's going on in there? You know, do your job, or read the Bible, or, or, or pray. Why are you so worried about this or that? We're too... We're to turn our minds forcibly to meditation on the truths of the Word of God. That's obligation number four. Obligation number five is that we examine ourselves, that we, that we regularly shine the light of the Word of God on our own souls, and we, and we say, have I, have I broken my fellowship, not my relationship, but have I broken my fellowship with God by getting carried away into this sin or that sin? Am I, am I keeping short accounts with God? Am I judging myself? Now my temper's getting out of control here. I need to, I need to pull that back. Lord, please forgive me. By your, the power of your spirit, enable me with self-control that I might not sin against you. And examining ourselves. Sixthly, are we sanctifying the Lord's day? Spending time listening to the preaching of the word of God. Worshiping the Lord in the midst of the people of God and then spending time with those people seeing how can I be of service and what do I need from God's people setting the Lord's day apart for worship and then the last on Thomas Watson's list of of the duties of the believer is holy conversation right we can spend a lot of time talking with people about all kinds of things how are the kids what's up with the weather let's talk about football that's a short conversation if it's with me um you know, because then I'm like, how many, how many points is a touchdown again? Um, anyway, uh, holy conversation says, okay, you know, let's, let's, 
we've had a little bit of the pleasantries. Let's push that aside and let's now focus on the condition of our souls. You know, last time we, we got together, you talked about the fact that you don't pray very often. How are you doing there? Here's, here's how I stir myself up to pray. Or, you know, man, last time we got together, I, I, I think I might have... I think I might have spent an enormous amount of time correcting you and your, your lack of prayer. And you know what happened to me? I suddenly found myself in a set of circumstances where, where I wasn't aware. I watched myself slowly slip away and my zeal for praying died. And now, I, you know, I just, I thought, man, I, I shouldn't be such a hypocrite, you know? Just forgive me for judging you. Let's, let's, let's spend some time in prayer together. Let's consider the goodness of the Lord. Would you, would you hold me accountable to see that I pray? Holy conversation considers the things of the Lord and then sees how we stir ourselves up to, to, to live out the commission we've been given by God. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 says that we should seek to live in a manner consistent with our calling. Live out lives of holiness. That's the idea there. An eighth obligation of the believer that I would add to Watson's list is this, that the Christian ought to embrace faith working through love towards God and towards men and women. It is an obligation of the Christian not just to, not just to fight back against sin, not just to, to perform our religious duties, but it is our responsibility to say, what would the Lord have me do? How would the Lord, since I've submitted so much of my life to him, since I'm, I'm praying and I'm, I'm hearing the word and I'm keeping short accounts and I'm considering uh, the, the goodness of God, what would the Lord have me do? How, how would he have me act? How has he created and wired me? What would the Lord have me pursue? And then we act, we embrace faith, working through love towards God and towards men and women. For some of you, this might mean that, that, that you're going to address that burden that you've got to share the gospel with some people. You've got some people at work that you should be sharing the gospel with, or, or maybe you should be focusing on sharing the gospel with your family. And that might be scary and risky. But the, but the heart that embraces faith working through love says, this is what what God would have me do to love this person and then says, I'm going to step out in faith and do it. I'm going to embrace faith working through love. Why is this so important? Galatians 5, 6 says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's not just the religious obligations that we're called to fulfill that, that, that count, Right? It's, it's not, it's not being Baptist that counts. It's not, it's not those things. It's not, it's not the external trappings. Now those things are important. And I, I would, I stand here saying that I believe as a, as a Baptist, we've got the best model and way of doing church that's out there. I think, I think I'm a Baptist by conviction. But being something and pasting a religious label on ourselves doesn't count for anything unless by faith we act. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. 
What counts? What does God see? God sees purified, righteous saints taking steps of faith to obey his commandments and love him and to obey his commandments and to love men and women. Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe the leaves off of your plants. You know, you focus on, on obeying all these, these little rules that, that I've, I've set out in the law, but you neglect the weightier manners of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. As Christians, we ought to say our focus, the focus of our church, the focus of our, our lives ought to be living just, merciful, and faithful lives. Not just, not just having our religious house perfectly in order. Now, having your religious house perfectly in order is well and good, but you ought to be doing the weightier things. Loving, being kind, being faithful. One of them, Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40, one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? What does Jesus say to him? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It is good for a church to, to have a statement of faith and a constitution and an identity and a theology. But that theology and that identity and that constitution and that statement of faith ought to drive them to living in a way that glorifies God as it urges people to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love their neighbor as themselves. That's the focus of our lives. It ought to be a stirring up of ourselves to, to put our sins to death then to, to fulfill our obligations, the greatest of which is to embrace faith working through love towards God and towards men and women. So where does that leave us? What are the marks of the church? What does, what does a godly, God-seeking, righteous, faithful believer look like? And then the, the last question is, how does that believer function within the life of the church and if the if the the church is composed of believers and is now seeking to to live in a way that glorifies God what then does that church do 1 Corinthians 12:27 says you are the body of Christ and individually members of it speaking of the individual Christian and the gathered body of Christians who are who are collected together in a local church there are a number of ministries that I believe flow from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and 47, which define the normal paradigm of the church's ministry. It's like, what should the church look like? Where, where do we go in the New Testament to see what the church should do? I think Acts chapter 2 is a, is a great place to go. Um, several people have, have analyzed this passage and come up with five ministries of the church. Um, that, that is... Uh, that's pretty standard that there are five ministries. I, I'm a second child and a nonconformist, and so I don't like taking somebody else's list. I'm always like, 
ah, he could have done a little better, and so I, I add something on there. So I've got, I've got one more, which we are going are to get through. But what are the ministries of the church? What should the church look like when it's functioning properly, when it's doing what it's supposed to do? There should be, I believe, six things happening on a regular basis. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The people were focused on saying, what is it that the apostles have to say to us? What is it that God speaking through his word in the law and the prophets fulfilled in Christ? And we today would say in the, in the recorded words of the apostles and, and the representatives of Jesus in the New Testament, what do the scriptures have to say? That's the ministry of teaching. I, I believe that the entire church rises and falls on the ministry of teaching. I, I think the ministry of teaching could set everything in the wrong direction. If the ministry of teaching is deficient, the church loses sight of the truth. And so the ministry of teaching has to be a priority. But, but when it's in place and it's functioning properly, all the other ministries ought to occur. Paul says that the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. And the truth is the word of God. And so the church ought to devote itself to the apostles' teaching. The church ought to, ought to seek to, to be spoken to and ministered to and shared with from the Word of God. And if anything is not consistent with the Word of God, it ought to be rejected. And if the pastor's theology is no longer consistent with the Word of God, he ought to be rejected. By, and that means fired and, and sent on the way. And so this is, this is why it is good to preach from the Word. And I urge you to inspect and examine what's said on a regular basis. The ministry of teaching. Second area is the ministry of fellowship. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You'll, you'll notice also it says, and the fellowship. In verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The church liked to be together. The church enjoyed being together. The church knew one another and they fellowshiped with one another. Fellowship is not something that you do in the church lobby, although it can happen there, but it's not restrained to the church lobby. Something, something that we do defending ourselves with cups of coffee. How are you? Good. Did you see that, you know, fumbled play at the end of the Packers game? Yeah, that was terrible, wasn't it? It's the only sports thing I remember from, from this past year. Um, that's not fellowship. Fellowship occurs when there is a, a deep connection and enjoying of one another. A, 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 a saying, how, you're struggling, how? How can we meet that need? You're grieving, how? I'm grieving with you. You're excited, I'm excited with you. Uh, a togetherness that occurs. This can only happen between believers. And it's built on the foundation of who we are in Christ, but it needs to be preserved and promoted. The ministry of service. It says in verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, having favor with all the people. There's this awareness that the church is connected and they ought to serve and care for one another. The ministry of worship. It says that they, they were devoted to the breaking of bread and awe came on every soul. And then in verse 46, day by day, they attended the temple together, praising God. God. There, there ought to be the gathering of the, the, 
The, the purpose of gathering together as a church is as believers to say, God is awesome. The work that he's done for us is incredible. The, the blessings of, of knowing Christ are amazing. And we are excited about it. John Piper describes that, he says that the church ought to have white hot worship. God is good. And we ought to rejoice and be glad about that. Coming together as a church is not, is not a, that we're, we're not supposed to gather together and do a bunch of stuff that appeals to the world. What, what can we do? How can we design our church to get as many people who don't believe the gospel to come into it? Because what does that do to the believers who are gathered? If we, if we so organize our church fellowship that, that what we're doing is seeking to minister to those who don't believe the gospel, how do we then feed those who do believe the gospel? Instead, what we ought to do, I believe, is, is create an environment, not a fake environment, but a real environment where people are genuinely saying, God is so good and so worth following that, that the people who then come in say, what is up with these people? What is this God like? And that's why our, our music and our prayers and the, and the words that are spoken and the, 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 the things that we do in the worship service ought to be focused on the goodness and greatness and power of God and not on ourselves. The church should not primarily be about seven ways to, to raise more obedient pets and to have happier children. That is good, but it should not be the endless focus of the church. Our need for God and our, our need for the gospel ought to be central the ministry of worship, the ministry of evangelism ought to be functioning. It says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Those who, who, who come across the fellowship or those who meet people who are in the church hear the word of God. They hear, they hear that they're sinners alienated from God. They hear that they cannot save themselves that they can do nothing to make themselves righteous, but that God sent his son and that, and that he took the sins of the world upon himself and, and, and took their place and that if they put their faith and trust in him, they can be saved. And then they're urged, repent and believe in this gospel. And it says that over and over, the Lord was adding people to their number. And then finally, here's number six. This is one that I've added. Um, it says that they were devoted to the prayers, the ministry of prayer. And the church, in small numbers and in large numbers, ought to gather together and to pray. The church ought to ask God to work. Because if you read the scriptures and you focus on what's being said there, we, we realize... That, that what's happening in the church, what God is doing through the church, is not something he's doing because of human effort, but instead human beings working and acting in the way which God calls us to act are then a means and a vehicle by which the Holy Spirit acts. God working through us. I'll have a little bit more to say about that in a couple minutes. Let me, let me talk about the ministry of the church, and this is going to get really personal for us in a couple minutes. Um, but, but I, I, think it, I think it works. Uh, I, th I think it's got general use. If you're a first-time visitor, I think this is important. 
Uh, one of my professors in seminary, Dr. Rick Higgins, said that ministry flows from being. Ministry flows from being. All the ministries of the church flow from the fact that God has done a work in our hearts. That, that, that God is creating His image in us. And therefore, fellowship in the church flows from our unity. Okay, this means two things. This means that, that, that in order to have fellowship... The, the people who are gathering together and seeking to be in fellowship must be believers because, because this unity is in the gospel. Let me, let me read a passage that, that points this out. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Do you see that? God, is, God has given grace to us as a gift, and He's knitted us together into one body and because we are knitted together into this one body we ought to walk in a manner worthy of that calling maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace we've been given this fellowship it flows from who we are as christians and therefore we ought to nourish it and encourage it fellowship flows from our unity our prayer the ministry of prayer within the church ought to flow from the our awareness that we are utterly dependent on god the teaching of the church ought to flow from the source of truth, which is the scriptures. Because in our minds and in our hearts, what does Jeremiah 17.9 say? That the heart is desperately wicked and sick. If Keith gets up here and gives you a bunch of opinions, and, and it's, not, it's not a sin to attach a creative story at the beginning of a sermon, or maybe to throw one or two in there and occasionally tell a joke or say something about the Power Rangers. You know, like, that's, that's not wrong. But the majority of the message ought to flow from the truth. Because we are prone to believe lies. So teaching, the teaching ministry of the church ought to flow from the truth. Our service ought to flow from the truth that we have been well served by God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we ought to serve in the way that we can serve others. Serve them, yes, by by offering food and clothing, but also sharing the gospel. Evangelism flows from the fact that we have been found and rescued by a seeking God who's called us to himself. And worship ought to flow from the fact that we realize that we are complete and that we have been given all that we need and that our response then to the God who's given these things to us ought to be exalting him and magnifying and lifting him up. As a church, we must be before we act. Does that make sense? This is why the church needs to be composed only of believers. Those who don't believe the gospel are welcome to attend the meetings of the church. They're, they're welcome to hear the proclamation of the gospel. But, but the church itself, the, the people who are who are connected and, 
and, and members of the church, they ought to be believers because none of these things are true of them unless they believe the gospel, unless they are redeemed, unless they are living out these lives of being what, what we would call visible saints. Second, ministry flows from being, being believers, being Christians who are living in the way that they're called to, but it results in tangible action. Teaching flows from the knowledge that I've, I've gained in hearing and studying the word, but it extends out to gathered hearers, whether those hearers are believers or not. I love it. Uh, I, I got a call a while back and somebody said, hey, would you be willing to do chapel over at Halo? Yes. Why? Because the truth needs to be taught. Hey, could you come over and speak on campus at this gathered meeting of college students? Yes. Why? Because the truth needs to be taught. Can you come over and speak at crew? Yes. I'm like, I, 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 when, when people call, I'm like, unless it's a kid's birthday, and even then sometimes, you know, if, if, the, if the schedule's right, I'm going. Why? Because the truth needs to be proclaimed. What we learn in the scriptures as believers needs to then come out in the ministry of teaching to gathered hearers. Fellowship, which we possess as believers, ought to manifest itself in opportunities for believers to be together. And this means that when somebody says, hey, here's a fellowship opportunity, you ought to come to it. As a believer, you ought to say, I'm going to go to that because that's the body of Christ. These are the people who I, I'm to gather with. Evangelism needs to, learns to communicate the truth of the word of God and the saving nature of the gospel and then finds opportunities to speak it. Service embraces humility and then looks out and finds needs no one is meeting. We ought to understand that we have these gifts and these blessings. We, we've heard the gospel and believed it if we're Christians. But, but it's not enough just to, to know the truth and to hold on to it. It then needs to result in action in order for the church to have ministry. And the ministry needs to be the ministry of the gathered, assembled believers. Being isn't the end of the need for the church. And acting isn't the end of the need for the church. The church also needs leadership. Ephesians 4.11 teaches that, that God gives leaders to the church. Leadership flows from being. Leaders in the church are called to act like Christians, and they must have exemplary and model character. This is, this is interesting. Stick with me and think about this. Our membership material points out that the lists of qualifications for elders in the New Testament points out that, that they must be able to teach. This is 1 Timothy chapter 3. They must not be new believers. That's two. And they, they must be male. And that might be controversial, but the word of God is often controversial where it comes into conflict with, with culture. Um, beyond those three things, when you look at the character qualifications for the elders of the church, the church is just called to inspect and to see that they are living out normal Christian lives. They don't need to be super. They don't need to be these amazingly different radical kinds of people. They just need to be doing the things that God commands. The life of the leader in the church, not limited to the office of elder then, ought to measure up to those behavioral marks as well. 
Leadership protects, serves, and guides. And ministries within the church need leaders who serve so that the good intentions of the people can be focused, so that obstacles that would stop progress can be eliminated, and that, and that God-honoring actions can be carried out in a principled way. Leadership prepares, takes action, and then follows through on good intentions. Doing all of this in the power and the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7 say this. Think about this, right? Paul says, what then is Apollos? You might be like, I don't know who Apollos is, okay? That's, that's okay. Next person mentioned. What is Paul? I don't know. Paul's an apostle. He wrote a big portion of the New Testament. Like, Paul is huge. Some people call him St. Paul, right? You know, and, they, and, and, and Paul's huge in the life of the church. But Paul points out here that Paul, in some sense, is nothing but a servant. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Our church, as we consider the ministries that the church needs to adopt and focus, we're going to be talking about these over the next couple months. As we, as we consider the, the, the ministries that need to be focused, leaders need to step forward and say, I am going to take the time to serve the church so that when we organize people to do ministry, the Lord will work through them. Servants, Paul describes himself as a servant through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. The ministry of evangelism means people need to be trained. Somebody ought to lead out on that. Somebody is leading out on that. Jason McCluskey is order, or, uh, organizing a teaching event here, February 28th, right? Unless you've got something important going on, be here. Learn to communicate the gospel and help create a culture of evangelism in our church so that, so that when people being trained encounter someone who needs to hear the truth, they are then able to share the gospel. And when they share the gospel, God works through them. Leaders need willing followers. Leaders need willing followers. Brave, willing, dependent on God, aware of the schemes of the devil, the wiles of the flesh, and the crushing advance of the world. Okay? Think about, think about the, the church in all of its struggles and all of its imperfections. And then look back at the Old Testament. What are the, the lessons that the Old Testament is, is that, that it's, it's there to teach us? Think about the story of, of Jericho, right? Crazy story, okay? Bunch of guys, all of Israel, marches around a city once every day, right? They march around the city. And then on the seventh day, they march around the city seven times. And then they blow trumpets, right? This is a, not a military strategy employed by anyone that I know today, right? It doesn't happen today. But God demonstrates that if they would simply obey, if they would follow, if they would work according to his instructions, then he would show up and do great things. And so the walls of the city came falling down. Was Jericho such a mighty external enemy to God's people that, that it could triumph over them? No. Think about Goliath. God sends this little kid to kill this giant 
No one is willing to trust God and to engage and to stand against that giant. But, but David says, the Lord is going to demonstrate that he's powerful and he throws that rock and he kills the giant. External enemies are not the problem of the church. Somebody might be like, our culture's changing, you know, uh, laws are changing, people don't, people don't go to church anymore. This should not threaten us. Think about the next stories that are told or the stories that are eventually told. Right? What did David do once he was king? He let his guard down. He didn't go out and lead the army. And he sinned with Bathsheba and that ruined his kingship. Right? After Jericho, what happens? One of the, the, the people in Israel covets some things and takes them from Jericho. God said everything should remain in Jericho. And then they go up to fight a much less significant battle and they're routed and defeated horribly. It's the internal enemy that the church needs to worry about, isn't it? The, the church following God faithfully and obeying his commandments has nothing to fear from the world or the devil. What we need to constantly be on patrol uh, about is patrolling our own selves and asking the question, are, are the believers believing? Are the, are the leaders leading? Is the truth being proclaimed and are people living in a, in a way that's consistent with that? The external enemy cannot stop God's people, but the internal one can. I'm just going to finish up here um, and, uh, and, and, and share the rest of what I've got to share the next time that I, I speak on this. But I just want to kind of uh, put, a, put a period at the end of the sentence. My urging then is this. All the parts working properly together will make the body grow. That's in Ephesians chapter 3. And so what this means is that those who've been given the burden of leadership, those who've accepted it, those who aren't even recognized as leaders within the church yet, but who have a burden or a passion for an area of ministry, ought to keep urging, keep asking, keep leading, keep being exceptional in their ordinary Christian lives. The believer ought to keep on checking the word, but keep on acting, following their leaders, responding, speaking up, acting, hitting reply when you receive an email that says, can you please respond to this? Because, because it frustrates leaders when, when the people that they're trying to lead don't respond. If someone's leading and they're leading in a godly way, then follow and support them. And bring your skills to the table. Bring your fully engaged Christian life that the church can live out its high and holy calling. The, the ministries that we've described are at the heart of what the church is, what, what Christ is seeking to do through the gathered, obedient, willing people of God. We need to position ourselves to, to follow in God's commands and in His ways if we desire God to work in and through us. Like like the specifications of that man who hung out that sign, it, it, needs to, it needs to be built according to specifications so that it will serve its function and lead and guide people properly. And so let's be careful and sure to build our church according to the description laid out in the scriptures and not the image of the world. And let us not fall victim to the temptations of the devil or to the ways of the flesh, but, but walk in the righteous commands of God each and every day that God might be glorified in us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you.
for the opportunity to gather together and to hear your word. We pray that the, that the word given, the word shared might shape and lead and guide us and that we might walk in your truth. Lord, people in our culture are so busy, busy about so many things. We might think, where can we find the time to devote to cultivating our spiritual life or to, to serving our church? But the truth is that we've all been given the same amount of time. It's just a matter of priority. And so we pray that you would help us to be devoted to live according to the truth. We pray that you would, hope, uh, that you would teach us to be dedicated to the truth. And we pray that we would live in a manner consistent with it. Father, help us to be built according to specification that people might be led to the gospel and led into a church that's living out the way that you've called us to live. Father, we thank you for your graciousness and your kindness. We pray your blessing uh, on, on the food which we're about to receive. We thank you for it. We pray that we would eat it in, in joy and for your glory. And we pray that you would continue to, to, to focus us on Christ and on his goodness and on the goodness of the gospel that we might enjoy you in the way that you've called us to. Father, we thank you. We love you. We pray your blessing on the remainder of the day. In Jesus' name, amen.